The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Um, a couple more times we're going to be in the third letter that John wrote. So three, John, uh, you can get there in your Bible. Got my sleeves rolled up now. The photo op's all over. I got to get to work. There you go. I'm sorry I'm a little drenched today. I don't know why. I'm just excited. Maybe that's it. My, uh, what's that called? My adrenaline's pumping. There you go. Ready to roll. 3 John verse 9 is going to be the primary place we're in this morning between verses 9 and uh, 12. John writes, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, imitate good Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know uh, that our testimony is true. I've been noticing a trend for a number of years now. Uh, this has nothing to do with COVID. It was actually something I began to notice prior to COVID. So I had a very uh, brief conversation with a good friend of mine who works in the uh, business of, the, of a local funeral home down at Kilner's in Fort Edward, and I asked her uh, why, uh, if she could give me any insight into why people are less and less likely to call on uh, a pastor to come and conduct a service uh, when it's uh, time when somebody dies, death of, death of a loved one. I've been noticing this trend, uh, probably for the first 25 years I was here in ministry, I would get anywhere between 10, 12, or more calls a year from one of the local funeral homes uh, asking if I would come perform services for someone because they didn't have a pastor, they had no religious affiliation. And it was a cultural thing to do. And, th and that, quite honestly, it just doesn't happen anymore. Rarely, rarely does it happen. Unless it's like the service I did yesterday, it was a personal relationship with this family. And so my, my friend made a couple of observations. She said, well, first of all, uh, people are not opting any longer for the full services of a funeral home simply because of the cost. And she kind of admitted on, on their end, on the business end, the cost of funeral and all of the arrangements that go with a funeral have risen so much that a lot of people are reluctant to pay that kind of money. And they may say to the, to the funeral home, you handle the cremation and then we'll take the remains and we're going to have our own services and do our own thing. And then she said, uh, but there's more. A lot of people today don't really respect the institution of death and dying. And especially when it comes to things like calling hours and have people together in one place. And uh, they basically are just making their own arrangements in life. And then she said, uh, and then if we do uh, get asked for clergy involvement, very often what they will say is, yes, find us some clergy, but just tell them not to be very religious. 
We don't want religious clergy. And um, I understood exactly what she meant because a number of years ago, I did a funeral for a family in the local area and uh, they thanked me for it. And then probably six months later, I was called upon with that same family to do another funeral. And the person in the family came to me and said, we like what you did, except just don't be as religious. And what she meant was, don't talk about the essential things around death and dying, primarily that there is a future life. And so my, my friend said to me, you know, so clergy come in and they just kind of make people feel good. God loves everybody, that kind of thing. And that's, if people are called in, that's what, they're, that's what they mean by don't get somebody who's very uh, religious. The loss of authority within community, the community in which we live, is certainly due to the increase of spiritual darkness. The spirit of this age that continues to spread throughout our land. But we also have to admit that the responsibility lies somewhat at the feet of the church who has uh, not exercised the, the, the authority of Christ in the world in which she finds herself. Sometimes uh, it's because of the scandals in the church that under the guise of authority, people's lives have been abused. Uh, and then, of course, sometimes it's because pastors refuse to actually um, preach the gospel and the authority has been uh, weakened or removed. Um, and, in, and in that regard, then, it, it lies um, at our feet. If non-Christians think about the church, I, I, I'm suddenly getting some feedback here. Do you hear that, Todd? Todd, do you hear that feedback? Okay, just as long as you know. All right, we're trying to adjust it. Good. Um, if non-Christians think about the church, they often will think about it in a suspicious way. Uh, and, and, of course, we have to admit that the church has a poor track record. Now, other institutions do as well. People are also su suspicious of the government. I was reading a report recently about the increase of deaths due to people not wearing their seatbelts. Uh, the number of traffic-related uh, deaths uh, due to seatbelt wearing had decreased. More and more people were wearing their seatbelts. And a suggestion is that uh, one of the effects of COVID is that people are so sick and tired of the government telling them what to do, what to wear masks or whatever it might be, that they're just like throwing their seatbelts off and saying, well, we'll show you there's one place, you know, and we'll risk getting a ticket, except they put their lives at risk. And whether that's related or not, uh, there's still not enough data to know. But the institutions that uh, at one time people did respect that had authority uh, are quickly losing respect. That's not just true in the, uh, and related to government and people, but it's also related to schools and it's related to all kinds of of institutions and of course it's related to the church and again when we think about authority in the church uh, we need to ask ourselves if people on some level expect more from the church shouldn't we expect more from ourselves shouldn't we expect more of ourselves as we are called to exercise the authority of Christ in the world in which we live what we've noticed from uh, John 3, uh, this third letter, 
is that uh, life in their church is not at all unlike life in our church. We've been encouraged to read how the initial response of the church 60 years after Pentecost, that the church is still doing many of the things that were done by the first church there in that great gathering in Jerusalem. We've said that uh, Third John is a, a painting, a portrait. It's showing us the fruit of how truth and love have come together, and it, and it shows us this beautiful picture of a church that is working uh, for the glory of God. And of course, we've tried to encourage ourselves that many of the things that we have recognized in this letter are true of us. As we talked about last week in areas of generosity and hospitality and just how God has blessed our church so greatly over the years as a church of great generosity and great hospitality. And we've seen how truth and love go together. But today we come, of course, to this difficult part of the letter because it deals with the issue of authority in congregational life now all authority matters all authority matters and i'm just going to talk today about the authority of the church it matters because god who embodies all authority has granted given over to human beings the responsibility to use authority in this life and he has done so in wisdom and he has done so in establishing boundaries or spheres in which authority is to be exercised you might remember when jesus ascends back into the his father's presence he tells his disciples that all authority is his in heaven and on earth and it is then under his authority that they were to go out and make disciples and that we are to go out and make disciples as well of all of the nations we should note that Jesus doesn't grab at that authority. He doesn't demand that authority. The authority is given to him by the Father. And the ultimate reality then, when Jesus ascends into heaven, and the ultimate reality that we have today, we sang about it earlier and behold our God, is that Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things and all things are being united together under the authority of christ and then the church moves out in his name and it does her work as she speaks the truth in love to the world that is in such great great need now when the church does this poorly or in blatant disobedience to the scriptures it reflects on Jesus. Every clergy that stands in a room in the midst of people grieving over death and dying and does not point people to the cross of Christ and tell them about the hope of the gospel reflects poorly on Jesus. And there's no hope then given to people in need. When the church ignores her responsibility and does not act with authority, either within the congregation or outside of the congregation, it reflects on Jesus. And of course, even when the church imperfectly, and yet with the best intentions, seeks to exercise her authority, it reflects on Jesus. We will never get it right every time. But if we, were, if we are in the power of the Spirit, seeking to do it, then God will bless us and God will help us and Jesus will pour out grace and the times we mess up, those things will get fixed and we'll continue on. 
The key here is to understand we have authority. And this is why authority must matter to the church because Jesus is the head of the church and it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. You know, on one hand, we have authority in this room. If you're a member of this church or a regular attender, we exercise authority. But we're also called to exercise the authority of Christ outside of this room in the world in which we live. But then Paul, when he writes this, says, oh, and by the way, when the church does her job, it says something to the rulers and authorities, the spiritual forces in the unseen world that God's manifold wisdom is right here in this room. Can you imagine? I mean, just take a look around the room. Like, yeah, if you're a Christian today, if you're a believer in Christ, you're part of the manifold wisdom of God. You look like it, by the way. You're really looking good this morning, like you're just full of the manifold wisdom of God. And, and, and Paul said what happens is these rulers and authorities in the unseen world look at us and they kind of scratch their head and they go, how could God make those people into anything at all? It is because of God's great power through Christ and his spirit poured out then that we have received that message of salvation. We are changed and transformed and we become the manifold wisdom of God, not only in the world in which we live, but to the unseen world as well. You see, just as the beautiful fruit of God's generosity and hospitality will continue to be ours to enjoy for all eternity, we're going to enjoy God's generosity. I have some really good news for you. We're also going to live under the authority of Christ for all eternity. If you think heaven is some place where you just get to go around willy-nilly doing whatever you want, it's not. The earth will be filled with the glory of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea and we will live under that authority and in obedience to it fully and completely in love for God and love for one another. That's really good news, by the way. As Christ stretches out his strong scepter and brings us to himself for all eternity. But I've wrestled with a question over the uh, weeks that I've been thinking into all of these sermons, but this one especially. And we're going to put the question up on the slide, and then I'm going to try to answer it, and hopefully you'll get the answer as I give it. Within a local church context, then, who has the authority? Who has the authority within a local church context? It's quite clear uh, from the text that John is exercising his apostolic authority. He's going to come, he's going to visit them, He's going to set things straight. It's also very obvious from the text that this guy, Diotrephus, thought that he had the authority. He's telling people what to do. He's pushing his weight around. Well, who's in charge? Who has the authority in the local church? Is it Diotrephus who puts himself first? The guy with the biggest mouth wins? Is that who it is? Or is it this John who apparently isn't even part of this church but is going to come and visit and lay down the law? Who has the authority? Well, we should start where John starts and say, for anyone, then or now, to not acknowledge apostolic authority, it is a very, very, very serious matter. Because as Tyler read for us from uh, Matthew, Jesus invested authority into the apostles he gave them the keys of the kingdom 
He invested his authority to them. He granted them authority as he ascends back up into his Father's presence. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, and you are going to be the foundation upon which that church is built. To have the keys is to have the authority. Again, Jesus didn't mean that the the apostles were just free to do whatever they want, whenever they wanted, however they wanted to do it. It is still the kingdom of our Lord. They are to be filled with the Spirit as they go out to exercise the authority of Christ. To have a sound theology of the church and to understand the authority of the church, you have to have a sound theology of Jesus as Lord of the church. And a sound theology of the Spirit who fills the church, filling all things within the church. We should recognize that the story of the growth of the church from Jerusalem forward is through the apostolic witness, but it is also the story of the Spirit then filling the church as they give witness concerning Jesus and people are brought to faith and obedience. So who has the authority Well, let's put up the second slide I want you to think about today. We should remember that the authority of the apostles wasn't exercised in the spoken word only. It is also exercised in the written word. And specifically for us today, that which is written in the scriptures. You see, on one hand, the apostles might come for a visit and exercise their authority. In another way, they will write a letter. You see Paul doing this. We see Peter has done this. We see certainly that John does this. And the reason uh, the scriptures are authoritative is that they are breathed out by the Spirit who gives guidance and direction to the authors of scripture. And so you may not know this, And I want to make sure you understand that the best I can today, that the writings of the apostles who are interpreting the Old Testament as they write about the life of Christ, those writings become the rule for the church. And as those letters are duplicated and sent out, and the elders of the church read them, and they call the people to obedience around them, the authority of the apostles is worked out in the church over the years whether they're visiting a congregation or not. And that's why it was so critical for the church to appoint the right kind of elders who would hold fast to the truth of God's word. And You know, as we read these letters today, we see where uh, sometimes those letters are very instructive and other times, like here in 3 John, they're painting us a picture. And of course, when you get to the Chapters 2 and 3 of the revelation of Jesus, you have Jesus himself through the Apostle John saying to the church, if you don't pay attention, I'm going to come and visit you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And you get to that last great hope in Laodicea. And what is Jesus doing at the church? He's knocking at the door and he's saying, open your doors, let me come in. Let's get back together and you can enjoy my presence and I can, I can enjoy you. This is the way that authority then was exercised by the apostles who were the foundation of the church. But then we have to ask this next question, well, what happens then after the apostles die? Now, many of you uh, grew up Catholic or understand in Catholicism that they have this thing called apostolic succession. It is not my point here to talk about the specifics of that. But the, the Roman church believes that 
the, the continuation of the apostles through the Pope, that they are to be the authority in speaking to the church. Some of you may have grown up Presbyterian in the Presbyterian model where a local church has a little bit of authority, but a larger group of men called the Presbytery meets and then really has authority and rule over the church. I was speaking, as you know, recently at Episcopal Church, and I was talking to my friend Carl about uh, you know, how this works. He says, well, I, as, as a rector, I actually shepherd the bishop's church. This church isn't mine. It is the bishop's church. And so I shepherd this church under the bishop's authority. Now, most of us have been in a congregational model, right? Where the congregation rules. You have business meetings and all those kinds of things. Congregations make decisions. And then, of course, some of us have been in churches where the pastor is the authority. And the congregation kind of goes with that and hopes that they get led benevolently and lovingly and that the pastor is a good guy. But he's the man of God. And what he says goes. And if you don't agree with him, there's the door. My brother out in Colorado was telling me that he was visiting a church recently where a pastor at the beginning stood up and said, well, you know, everybody welcome, but I want you to know this is who we are, and if you don't like it, there's the door. He actually said that. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, but they have 19,000 people spread all across Denver in their various locations, so it must work. I said, yeah, but I'm not going to try that. <laughs> Hard enough to get people in the door. I'm not going to show them where the door is prematurely. Um, it's hard to say which of these various models of structure are the best or the wisest because quite honestly, uh, the apostolic letters don't say this is the one that you're to have. And so various churches over the years have expressed authority uh, in a variety of different ways. But the letters do indicate, and we should remember this, that the church is to continue to exercise authority. And what it seems clear to me and why this is how we do it is that the exercise of authority is put into the hands of the elders of the church who then shepherd the people from God's word. And we here at Durkee Town have a lot of congregational buy-in. So it's not uh, autocratic, but it is together as a body seeking the will of God. And so then the answer to that first question, who has the authority? Well, I do believe that the church is to live under the authority of the apostles through the word of God as they have given us the word of God. That uh, their authority as revealed in the scriptures and what they taught how we are to understand the law and the Psalms and the prophets are to be the way that the apostles taught. And so we live under the authority of the Scripture. You know, I, I, very often I will read, uh, you know, on some uh, social media site, people saying, you know, here's what you need to do with the poor, here's what you need to do with this or that or the other. And I'm always interested at how many people appeal to Jesus as a moral figure but then they don't appeal to the apostolic writings as to how we are to understand what Jesus said. And they just say, well, this is what Jesus said, so therefore this is what goes. Yes, but not entirely. We are to understand what Jesus said. We are to understand the Psalms and the law and the prophets in light of what God shows us in the apostolic writings. 
And I think then that is what is meant by living under the authority of the Scriptures, breathed out by God, all Scriptures given by inspiration of Him, sure. But how did the apostles help us understand that? And are we willing to live under that authority? But then we have another question. We'll put it up on the screen for you. What happens then when a person uses the Scripture and their position to abuse the congregation? The tragedy of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church caused people to distrust not only the church but the Scriptures as well. And if you were upset about the cover-up in the Catholic Church, make sure you save some righteous indignation for the evangelical church as well. Because month after month after month, news becomes more and more and more public of a pastor or a church leader or somebody being exposed as having to abuse their authority under the guise of the Scriptures. That abuse is uh, sometimes sexual abuse, sometimes it's financial abuse, Sometimes it's verbal abuse, especially towards women who are Christians. This abuse also is felt among ethnic minorities, black Christians especially, all of whom in Christ, brothers and sisters. So as I think about these things, I grieve over them, and I grieve over the way people view the church, who in so many ways has ruined its testimony as a voice of authority in the world in which she exists. And so we have to ask this next question. How do we exercise the authority of the head of this church, who is Jesus Christ? And how do we do that in a way that enables us to speak the truth with love and draw people into that truth as we love them and bring healing to them? Well, I think John lays it out really good for us. First of all, in verse 9, we've got to address the root problem. And for Diotrephus, the root problem is pride. He just was full of himself. He just couldn't shut his mouth. He had to let everybody know what he thought. And he was going to push his weight around. Those attitudes, when they show themselves, follow the root, it's almost always pride. It might be insecurity, or it might be an overwrought opinion of oneself, but they're always pride. And John recognizes this, and it's very important for the church to remember that just as Diotrephus was filled with pride, we can be filled with pride as well. We can come across as so arrogant and so loud and so unkind, boasting about, we know it all. But the second thing that John does for us that we see in this text is that he addresses this problem with courage. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring this up. Because uh, guess what? I can't let this hurt the congregation any longer. And John is going to bring up the actual issue. And the actual issue, of course, is that Diotrephus not only is filled with pride, but the pride that doesn't acknowledge there in verse number 9 what? John says, our authority. Now, you might wonder why it's plural. Our authority. It's plural 
because John had commissioned these workers to go to this church where Gaius was attending and to bring them the message that John wanted to send. And, and Diotrephes said, no, 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 you guys aren't getting in here. John saw his authority being worked out in the lives of these messengers for the church. And John says, the problem is pride. And when I come, I'm going to deal with it because this guy doesn't recognize our authority. Which John had over the church as an apostle. But John does something else for us in this text that's equally important. He not only points out the source of evil, but he also points out the good. And I want to remind you that not every church is doing it wrong. Not every church has ruined her testimony. Things can, by God's grace, be turned around, but we must encourage the good even as we face the evil. And so John says, Beloved... Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seeing God. And then he says, look at Demetrius. He's received a good testimony from us. You know, you should be able to look around congregational life and you should be able to see people who are doing good in the exercising of authority. Might be with their family, their children, or if they're single themselves or just a couple together, whatever it might be, you should be able to say, hey, they're really doing good. Centered, focused on Christ, gospel-oriented, they're doing good. You ought to be able to look around the room and say, like, our diaconate, they're doing good. They're caring, they're praying, they're involved in people's lives. You ought to be able to look at the elders and say, those elders are doing good. They're shepherding us. They're not being abusive, overly authoritative. They're not being hypocritical. You ought to be able to look at that in congregational life and say, they're doing it good. And then you know, you ought to to encourage that. You ought to encourage that. There are so many examples of it being done wrong. But when we see it being done well, John says, make sure you say something. And, And then in verse 12, he does something else for us. He says, Get your unity built around those who are led by the truth. Not only Demetrius, he says, but also we add our testimony. And you know that our testimony, our testimony is true. Now what I'm about to say to you as I try to wrap this up, it's probably one of the most important things I've said in this sermon Because these four responses that John shows us, they're not John's little bit of advice for how to take care of problems in the church. Like, oh, he's going to give us his little book of advice. And if you run into problems, you can go to John's little book of advice and figure out what to do about it. It's not the way this works. These are, uh, in many ways, identical to the response that Jesus had to the religious leaders of his day. The religious leaders who were abusing their authority among the Jews. And if you think back into the gospel accounts, you would read how the prophetic ministry of Jesus identifies the actual problem in Israel at that time as being spiritual pride. And then Jesus spoke out against that pride. And then he reminded the listeners that there were both good examples and evil examples. That they needed to set their minds and 
hearts on those good examples and follow. And then, of course, he calls for his people and especially the disciples, the apostles, to come around him who is at the center of truth. He is the great unifier. So John isn't just sitting back, you know, in his chair and thinking, what am I going to write to these guys? they got a problem. Oh, here's what I'll write. And it's his little book of advice. No, John must have reflected into the life of Jesus. He sees a pattern being established. And then he says, church, this is what you need to do. And if we are going to live under the authority of the apostles, as expressed in the scriptures, then this is what we need to do. If we are going to regain and then use the authority of Christ in the best way in the world in which we live. But I want you to consider this as well. Jesus himself didn't just come up with a four-step process. He didn't get in a strategy meeting and say, oh, well, how am I going to deal with these, these religious leaders? They're a problem. You see, it's a redemptive path that Jesus shows us. That Jesus himself solves the problem of pride by giving himself over to the prideful as he lays down his life as the payment for sin. You see, Jesus solves the problem of sin and death for every prideful person who has shoved their fist in the face of God. Every single person like Ken Prater who has acted like he was his own authority. And Jesus has identified the real problem in my life. And then he has resolved that problem by going to the cross and paying for my sin. And then in, instead of demanding his rights, he lays his rights down as he takes on the work of God's servant. And he goes to his cross publicly. He bears our reproach. That is, he brings up the actual problem for all of the world to see as he pays the debt of sin on his body on the cross. And then, of course, he is so committed to the truth that he refuses evil. He holds to that which is good. You can read time and time and time again, people who are dying in pain and suffering curse God, curse other people. This is unfair, whatever it might be. What do we have when we see Jesus on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is authority being expressed in the right way. Not just a moral example to follow, but a way in which the church is to live as we too are buried with Christ in his baptism, raised with Christ in his resurrection. Why does authority matter? Because it's a reflection on Jesus. And so let me, let me end just very quickly with four exhortations rooted then in the good news of Jesus. They're going to be on the screen. I'm not going to comment on them. I'm just going to read them. In an age when everyone views their opinion to be as authoritative as everyone else's opinion, we need to be ready to lovingly talk with them in a way that leads them to see Jesus who has been given all authority. The church must do this in an age when everyone views their opinion to be of equal value. The second exhortation, in an age where so much abuse has been endured by people in the church, 
We need to be ready to lovingly bind up and heal wounds by showing and telling the truth of Jesus in love. There are wounded people in our church who have been abused by church authority in their lives. And what's true here is true in the community around us. Let us be ready to heal. Here's the third exhortation. In an age of deep division over so many issues in the church, we should be ready to call people to true unity around Jesus, who is bringing together things in heaven and things on earth through the church, which is his authoritative body. And then finally, in a time when so many are falling away from the faith, let us be ready to say that we have surrendered to the authority of God's word because the apostolic rule of faith is still the rule of the church today as we exercise the authority of Christ for the church in the world in which we live. So may God help us to be the kind of church that is submitting wholeheartedly to the apostles' doctrine so that we too may be filled with the Spirit as we go about the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Father, I pray that whatever was not made clear would be made clear either through your Spirit or through conversation afterwards. Wherever we are resistant to the authority of Christ through his Word, would you melt our hearts and give to us penitent hearts. And then wherever we lack courage, give us courage. Even now as we come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Let us be strengthened by this table which brings to us the love and mercy of God in Christ Jesus, I pray. I want you to take a few... Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.